when Cecil Trachtenberg videos have more have more of a quality standard than your movie, you've got a problem. I am a legitimate filmmaker, I'll have you know. <laughs> Jerk. Radio Drome. Well, I don't know if you guys ever think that Radio Drome had a transition period or not. I mean, we did transition from Brad to Cecil, which was kind of an uneasy transition. But I am Josh Hadley. The Cecil is here in question. Yes, he is. And so is Alex. For some reason, he's a really bad dinosaur Jowski. Well, you, you know why, but yeah, I'm here. Yeah, no, but the audience doesn't. It gives a little I- intrigue. You don't have to always say it. Why don't you do the Adam and Eve promo in color? Make it a nice, even transition. Well, uh, I would say if our audience is uh, is on E, then they probably will be able to see uh, in, or hear in color. Go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME to get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the U.S., three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift. Everybody loves the mystery gift. That's why it's mysterious. So what we're actually going to talk about tonight is the uneasy transition period from whether it be one format to another, from one style to another, or sometimes from one genre to another. What actually prompted this is Ethan Dexter, a listener of ours, sent me a 1961 TV guide. Don't ask, okay? And there's an interesting article in here about the transition from black and white to color, how the TV station, the the three TV networks, didn't want to go to color, and how NBC, owned by RCA at that point, was basically forcing them. There are some interesting things in this. Do you think it is likely that a 10-year-old can go out and purchase a color TV set? Not only do we think so, but we believe Disney can provide us with the big, big breakthrough for color that we've been looking for for years. NBC had the wonderful world of Disney at that point. Our analysts tell us that if the kids start screaming that they must see the Walt Disney show in color, the family will be forced to buy them in color. We believe they'll keep the old set too, so the old man can watch the fights in black and white in peace and quiet. Before we move on, your thoughts on that? Why wouldn't the old man watch them in color if they bought the color TV anyway? I think because like he could take the fights into the other room, maybe? I just hate that phrase, he's going to watch the fights. It's the early 60s! <laughs> Where else can you legally see white guys beat on black guys on TV and it not be a crime? No. <laughs> Disney has led the way in a lot of transition stuff, so I completely understand them setting a standard with going from black and white to color because it's because Disney going with VHS and then Disney going with Blu-ray that, that we had those transitions. That where Disney goes, that's where... Things are going to go. Not just porn, but Disney. It's just so typical to hear that the stations were against this. I mean, how many different things have come along that uh, someone in charge of media has been against? They don't want 
they don't want widescreen or they don't want shows to be shot in widescreen, even though everybody has a widescreen television. They don't want to go from black and white to color because they're just they they're always bucking transitions where it's in the end it's benefiting the consumer but they just don't want to spend the money on it to upgrade to it for whatever well because of money but uh, it's just so annoying to hear that kind of thing and it really did did come down in this case to money because with rca owning nbc they were making the tvs as well they were the first manufacturer of color tvs one of their ads this was a magazine advertisement in 1964, so three years after the quote that I just read. To the many thousands of families buying a color TV this week, here are the facts to remember. RCA pioneered color television, made it a reality, made it dependable, proved it in homes like yours. RCA Victor introduced the high-fidelity color tube, proved in use to give you a picture of up to 50% brighter than any previous color tube. You get unsurpassed natural color. Color so clear, so bright, you have to see it to believe it. Plus the dependability of space-age sealed circuitry. It goes on from that. But right there, RCA had a financial investment to get people to go to color. Even though the movies were in color at this point, RCA was like, if we start broadcasting NBC in color, then people will want our color TVs. So it... In a way, wasn't this kind of using the software to push the hardware? Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Because uh, it, it, it was one of those things where even if they started broadcasting in color, it's not like the black and white TVs weren't going to be able to receive the signal. It's just that they obviously wouldn't be in color. They would be watching the same programs in black and white. So there was an uh, there was a reason for them to go ahead with this. It was just moving the thing forward. It was pushing the 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 technological envelope so yeah the fact that the other networks didn't want to do this i guess probably what ended up happening was when you said uh, rca owned nbc yeah at, at the time rca was owned or nbc was owned by rca so if nbc started broadcasting color well then the other two networks were going to have to because they didn't want to be the ones that were still in black and white because then that you know their their com competition would have a major advantage over them. Now, one of the other problems that happened with this transition was CBS and ABC they cheaped out when they built the, most of their TV stations. Most of their affiliates around the country weren't capable of receiving a color signal because they went with black and white is here why should we install color equipment? So this would be a major overhaul, something that I think is akin to the digital transition that we had in 2007. To just stick to TV for a moment, what about that awkward transition from analog to digital that we had in 2007? It went relatively smoothly, but again, didn't we see the exact same battles that we saw in the 60s, this exact, we've got one or two places like Comcast and that that are pushing it, and then everyone else is going, there's nothing wrong with analog. To me, the biggest change here, Cecil, you brought up the people who still had a black and white TV could still get a color picture, right? Not so with the digital transition. It was either you switch or you lose TV. That, I think, was the major change from 1961 to 2007. That was a big thing because, heck, you could still use a black and white TV up until the digital transition. 
Because I don't. Yeah, think I still had a little black and white portable that could still get local TV signals in 2006. Yeah, the digital transition being like you have to do it or else. I think the benefit though is that the government was on board to oversee it. It wasn't that way with the color TV. That was like if you want it, get it. But the government's like, if you want your free analog converter box, this is how you get it, where you didn't have to go with the cable provider. Although that was the reason for it. Cable providers wanted you to get their service. But if you wanted to be, you know, without it, stubborn, you could get this box. And I remember I was still doing telemarketing at the time and telling people how to set up those boxes. I was part of that calling project to make sure people got them. Yeah, I was going to say, there even though, it, yes, technically, once they flipped the switch, if you still had an old TV, you wouldn't get a signal. But they were giving out the free antennas that you could get, so you could still watch TV. It's just you weren't able to watch it as you were before. You had to get uh, this, you know, uh, this converter. But, so but, but it wasn't the like big, they were taking. One of the big problems, Cecil, with the converter is I couldn't use one at my house. I used to be able to get an analog signal. It might be fuzzy or whatnot, but I can't get anything with the digital converter unless I pay. I have direct TV unless I pay for a service with analog. You could maybe get a ghosted picture or you could get a fuzzy picture or something like that. You could get a partial picture with digital. It's you got it or you don't with analog. You still could play around with it a little bit. It was a little more malleable, wasn't it? Eh, but really, uh, you know, I mean, what what good was the partial picture anyway? I mean, aside from when you're 13 years old and you found the booby channel. I used to watch Star Trek from a Michigan station that I used that I shouldn't have been able to get if it was bouncing off the clouds in the right way. You know, you could. Yes, it was a fuzzy picture, but I was still watching Kirk make out with alien chicks. That's fine. I, it's just uh, I, I this is one where I think that it was a necessity. It was a way of being able to move things forward, because uh, if if we had both things, it just it wouldn't make sense to continue doing analog and digital. It's just we had to move forward on this. And I think in the end, it was for the better because now we're getting better picture quality. Shows are being shot in widescreen, even though they're still putting the stupid um, what uh, the still the the bug over like a foot in on your screen instead of over in the right hand corner because that way they're still kind of compensating for people who still have analog TVs. But I, I think it was a move for the better. And see, I, I disagree with that on a certain level because for one thing. Just like the transition in 61, this was all about selling TVs. This was about, hey, your old TV, like those old portable TVs they used to have, or those old mini TVs where you could take it in the basement and just, you know, watch some movie. Most of the TV VCR combos didn't work anymore because those only had one RF jack in the back. So unless you went and bought another splitter, you weren't able to hook up anything else to that. And I think this was about saying, we want you to throw out all your old technology and just buy the new stuff. That's what I think this was. This was just a almost built-in redundancy. We gave you a built-in fail date, and now we, you've got to go buy all your shit again. As I said, when I was doing the telemarketing and informing people about it, 
most of the people I talked to were elderly senior citizens that were stubborn and confused about it all. That most people under the age of 50, they were right on board with it. Old people hate change. I'm not trying to go all Alex Jones on this, but an analog signal is relatively easy to break into or interrupt, as we've seen numerous times throughout the 80s and early 90s. The digital is really, really hard unless you've got the code crack, unless you're a code cracker. So this was also a layer of, quote, protection from hackers, which I think is a little overblown. What I want to see happen is, you still got all these old TVs that can pick up an analog signal, right? And they are most TV stations, and I worked at one at the time, they just threw out all their old analog equipment. That means all this equipment can still transmit to these TVs. Why has there not been a bootleg TV station, pirate TV underground, building up on the old analog signals? I think this needs to happen. Well, the only people that are going to watch that are the old people in nursing homes that never got the digital stuff. Uh, or you could go to Goodwill and for $5 buy one of those old TVs. Yeah, but who's going to? I think that would actually make for a really awesome movie. Realistically, uh, with, I, I copyright that right now. It's my idea. Absolutely, dude. You take full claims. If anybody rips it off, it's recorded right here. But uh, uh, as far as realistically, with with the internet, there already is underground everything that uh, if you know how to get to it, you know, if you know the site or whatnot, you can watch it. So having a underground like TV uh, series or a TV network that's running straight to analog, all that's asking for is to just get a massive federal arrest warrant. Well, let's move from that then from t the television transition to the other big transition that had a very uneasy time period working side by side. VHS to DVD. Now, Laserdisc and VHS basically got along okay. It was VHS is there for everybody, and, and I'm this is after VHS has kicked Beta's ass, so Beta was never really a contender for numerous reasons. And then Laserdisc was sort of the collector's format, if you wanted it widescreen and to hear the director's commentary and whatnot. And then DVD came in, and DVD basically said, I am done with all of you. I am just Laserdisc. I am going to put you into the ground. VHS, you're dead. You just don't know it yet. Why do you think there was th that that was such an uneasy transition from VHS to DVD where it wasn't from VHS to Laserdisc? I think because not a lot of people had Laserdisc and DVD caught on a lot more. It was a lot much much more versatile than Laserdisc was. Because it was the size of a CD, it's easier to maintain, and more. It was becoming more and more popular. Studios were able to explore the format a lot more, and they latched onto DVD more than Laserdisc. So they wanted to sell DVDs more than they wanted to sell VHS. To a degree, but look at the first, say, twenty or so releases on DVD. They were Laserdisc ports to the point where they were even flipper discs. Go look at the original release of Seven or The Exorcist. They're flipper discs, and the flips are at the exact same points as the laser disc. The commentaries are the laser disc commentaries. The extras are the extras from the laser disc. They were just laser discs on a CD. They really weren't all that different, really. They had to start somewhere. 
Stargate was another one that was a flipper disc that was annoying because it was just like, what? It, it was so dumb. I think the transition, the problem with that was that the studio had seen how VHS and, and Laserdisc had been kind of going side by side for so long with VHS just dominating the market. Laserdisc just, like Alex said, the the discs were huge, the players were expensive, the actual movies were expensive, and there just wasn't that much buy-in. So I think with studios just porting the movies over to DVD, they were kind of dipping their toe in. They were like, well, we're going to see how this goes over. Once people started buying into it, then that's when they were like, okay, you know, people are, are really getting into this format. And I think it was a little bit more accessible to people because CDs had already been around for a while. And so people are like, oh, well, you know, well, if I have this wonderful audio quality on a CD, now movies are coming out. I'm getting better, uh, a better picture than I'm going to get on VHS. Movies themselves weren't tremendously expensive to buy. At, you know, whereas a VHS tape back in the day, if you wanted a, a VHS copy of a movie, it was like $120 where you could get a DVD copy that would have a beautiful picture, extras, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you could get it for like 20, 30 bucks. People were jumping all over it. It was it was very easy for them to swallow. Do you think that has to do with the actual quality or the fact that it was just something new? Because one of the things that – the same thing that happens every time there's a new video format that happens, happened with Laserdisc, happened with VHS, happened with Beta, happened with DVD, it happened with Blu-ray, is they just take what was already out there, move it over. And I'm not talking about the Laserdisc transfers thing, but like I saw numerous DVDs. There were, there were certain companies that were like the – they were like the Platinum Disc Corp of the early – or of the, of the late 90s that – we're literally just taking VHS copies and putting them on disc where I've got both and I'm putting them side by side and there is no picture difference, no sound difference. And people were like, oh, my God, that movie's on DVD when it's literally a VHS copy. It was just the format made them go, oh, my God, this is new. I need this. But you're, you weren't actually improving anything. The The problem with that is that what happened was that was the studio screwing over the public. There were people that say uh, a movie that had been on VHS for a really long time and it was crappy VHS quality. And then they just ported it off the VHS and put it on DVD. Well, people seeing how other movies were getting this really nice remastered treatment, they were like, oh, wow, well, this movie that I really like, that there's only been a four by three full screen version, it's going to DVD. This is awesome. So they would go and buy it and then would be like, what the hell is this crap? So I don't think that that is the fault of the public. I mean, people should do their a little bit more homework, but in general, a lot of times people just will run and buy stuff. But uh, I still think that this was a case of they were excited because they were expecting a certain level of quality, and then the studio, not surprisingly, let them down. I've seen this exact same thing with Blu-ray. I was at Walmart the other day, and they had a Blu-ray public domain horror movie set. It's the same ones you get off the Platinum Discorp DVDs. It might even have been from Platinum Discorp, which are VHS rips. So you have VHS quality on Blu-ray. It begs the question... Why? Uh, I could possibly answer that. 
how many movies were on there. Because whereas the public domain DVD sets, you're getting maybe 50 discs with 100 movies on it. Whereas if you had a Blu-ray copy of that same thing, you could probably fit all 100 movies on one disc. The point of Blu-ray is supposed to be better video quality, better audio quality, not just the VHS print on a disc. Right, but the thing is, there's also a convenience factor. If you can get all of those on one disc, then, I mean, because people that are going to buy that, that's a case of where people are going to know that they're not getting, uh, what's a really good, they're not getting the Avengers on Blu-ray. They're not getting, like, this really high-fidelity, good-looking movie. They're You're trying getting... to say there's a problem with Satan's School for Girls? Actually, Satan's School for Girls is on DVD, if I'm not mistaken. Like, a real copy on DVD, if I'm... It's the, it's the same print. It's the same print. All right, well... Yeah, I, I didn't completely, I, I mean, kind of dabbling looking at that one. But anyway, um, I the people that are going to pick up, you know, uh, oh, a hundred sci-fi movies on Blu-ray are not going to look at the back and all of a sudden be like, uh, you know, Teenage Caveman. Yes. You know, I, you know they're, they're going to know that these are not, quote unquote, Blu-ray quality versions of these movies. Well, Blu-ray is slowly starting to replace DVD. I mean, it's going to happen within the next few years, the same way it did with VHS. And a lot of people already have replaced their DVDs with Blu-ray. So for some people, if they want this disc, if they want to watch these movies, Blu-ray is going to be their only option. The weird thing was you had, you had VHS coexisting with Beta and Laserdisc for an extended period of time, almost 20 years. Because they were still making commercial betas up until the mid-90s. I've got a Star Trek, the original series, Columbia House beta tape that has a 1997 copyright on it. And I didn't realize they were still making commercially released beta tapes that late into the 90s. But apparently they were. The thing was that DVD and VHS did not seem to be able to coexist. Why do you think there was just that, that brutality, that brutal war... DVD just, why do you think it destroyed VHS so fast? Keeping in mind that it's estimated right now that half of every movie that's ever been put out on VHS is not on DVD or Blu-ray and probably never will be. So why do you think people just snob at VHS when it has a library of things you can't even imagine on DVD? A reason a lot of stuff that's on VHS will never make it to DVD or Blu-ray is because it just wasn't popular. There's not going to be the money in it. I'm really hoping that the people who are currently setting up the uh, the DVD and Blu-ray deals are forward-thinking enough to realize that looking back on all the VHS stuff gone wrong, like basically the reason why a lot of VHS movies never made the transition to DVD and Blu-ray is because of simple nonsense. Like the language in the contracts. The language in the contracts. Like with the TV show Werewolf. They were trying to get Werewolf put on DVD, and they were almost there, but one band that was uh, on the soundtrack would not agree to the terms that they were giving and they had to scrap the entire deal because because in the case of that it wasn't something like miami vice 
where you had separate audio tracks and you, as bad as it is, you could strip out the song and put it back. Werewolf was a low-budget 1987, essentially syndicated series, but it was on Fox. They recorded everything in mono, so the audio of the episode was married to the song. They were unsep- they were inseparable, so it was, well, we can either skip this episode off the DVD and give you the other 27 episodes or scrap the whole thing. And the fans were like, screw you, I'd rather not have it than have it, have it missing an episode. Well, it wasn't even so much that it was missing an episode. It was missing an incredibly pivotal episode to the entire series. So right. they couldn't even cut like that scene that it just so happened to be incredibly important. So they just they, they couldn't do it. And it, it just sucks. And so I'm hoping that the lawyers and everybody that are doing stuff now are forward thinking enough to put in the contract future proofing it. So that whatever the next format is, digital or something else, that they could say, okay, well, this will move forward and you've already agreed to you will get this percentage of, you know, the rights and, you know, of the of the cut of the money and blah, blah, blah. As far as why there was such a drastic move to DVD, uh, like I said earlier, I think it was just the quality and everything. And if you remember, though, the biggest company to fight dvd was blockbuster video that freaking archaic dinosaur that thankfully went out of business they refused to go to blue or they refused to go to dvd because they had such a market of vhs so they fought it for the longest time and then they finally did go to dvd and then what happens years later um when netflix comes out they completely, you know, put their hands on their hips and no, we're going to keep doing it this way. And then they ended up shooting themselves in the foot again. And then they finally, you know, went under because of that. Well, you've got that. But what about the uneasy transition within movies themselves? Like the transition from practical effects to CGI, which in reality wasn't as quick as you think it is. Because most of us remember the, the those first Big budget CG movies where a lot of the effects, the monster or whatnot, was done in CG and it was awful looking. And you audibly wondered, why was that not done with a practical? Because it cost more to do it in CG, it took longer, and it looked worse. So why? Just the transition of the CG thing is so new, we want to play with it for a while? Or do you think they were kind of going, well, it doesn't really matter. It, they know this is the monster. It doesn't matter if it really integrates properly. CGI opened up a lot of different options for special effects. That There was a lot of stuff that wasn't able to be done with practicals. And there was also the convenience of it. The fact that why spend all the time and effort doing it with the practical when we could get the exact same thing with the computer? Except you, I'm talking about the early era here where you couldn't. Where, like in Anaconda... It was such a quality difference between the CG snake that looked like something out of a video game and the practical snake that they were actually interacting with. You can just visually see that one looks like shit. That one doesn't look bad. So you'd go, why? Why would you want the crappy CG one that you could have done with a practical, but you just said, I want to do it on the computer? Well... Maybe it was cheaper for them. I don't know, actually. In the case of Anaconda, 
the reason why they went with the CGI snake was simply because the set pieces that they wanted to do, it was incredibly difficult to do with practical effects. And to have like somebody jumping off of a waterfall and having the snake, you know, fly down after them, wrap around them and swallow them in one seamless motion. Fake. It looks so fake that it, it destroys any sense of, oh, that was a cool looking shot because you go, what the hell was that? It was a cartoon. At the time, people absolutely loved it. I saw Anaconda in the theater. And when that stuff was going on, people were cheering. So at the time, I mean, looking on it back on it now, yes, it does look hokey. But back then, I think people were all on board. They thought it was it was cool. It was different. It was new. I don't think that we really foresaw it going in the direction where it is now as far as just CGI you know, over, overthrowing everything. But I remember when I saw Jurassic Park in the theater and thought that that was incredible and still go back and look at it as like a high watermark for but with CGI. Jurassic Park, but with Jurassic Park, it was a mixture of. Yeah, practice. there's a lot yeah. more practicals in that than people think, because for whatever reason, they played up the fact that CGI, CGI to the point where some magazines, some of the more mainstream magazines were reporting that all the dinosaur footage in this movie was CG, was all done on the computer. And it's like, no, that's wrong. Well, I mean, it was it was Phil Tippett, too. So, I mean, the, the guy is a legend in the industry and always does good. Well, he's he's great at effects. I'm, I'm still not sold on his directing. But um, yeah, I, don't, I think that's more of the fact that they won't give him the budget that he would need in order to do the, per, you know, the productions that he wants to do. Uh, as far as the look of the stuff that he creates, I still think that we should be sticking with the practical slash or practical effects enhanced with CGI because those are always the most impressive ones. Straight up CGI still looks hokey. And I, I think the, yeah, the, the movies where you can't tell what's CGI and what's not are the ones that I like the best. Speaking of this transition period here, Phil Tippett, as you brought up, was talking on the RoboCop DVD about how he was being put out of business. He saw, even though we're talking the Anaconda era of of CG, where it literally does not look as good as a practical that's doing the same thing, but he he said people were just so enamored with you're doing this on the computer he would get a call for a job and they'd explain to him what he would want what they want from him for the movie and then he'd be like all right it'll do this and this and this and this and then he said what always lost him the job was you're going to do this on the computer right and when he told them that it would be practicals they were like oh well well we'll go to someone else then and he and he tried to convince them i can make it look better for the same amount of money, but they just wanted the novelty. To me, I think at, in the, those early stages, it was the novelty of, it's on the computer! I think beyond the novelty, there's never going to be an on-set accident when you're doing a visual on a computer versus a special effect. So there is that. I mean, it's like, okay, we want all these pyrotechnics, but it has to be done CGI because we're not going to be paying insurance. We're not going to risk an onset accident. Certain movies, I, I understand the need to do it on the computer. Uh, Sin City, it's just 
because of the way that they stylistically chose to do that to make it look as much like the comic as possible, it enabled them to shoot the whole thing on a green screen and to add in all the uh, visuals to make it as close to the comic as possible. Uh, the 300 was another one where they, with the budget that they had, they wouldn't have been able to have these massive sets and the big boats and all that stuff. It wasn't feasible. So, cause that's another one where the majority of that was shot on a green screen. So from a stylistic perspective, if you're going to use it in that way, I think it works, but when you're using it just for the sake of using it because you think that that's what people want, well, that's when you end up with movies where it's going along and it's really cool, and then all of a sudden, oh, look, bad CGI, or so, and, and now 3D is the other thing, where it's CGI was the novelty before, and now 3D is the novelty where everything has to have 3D. Well, 3D was a novelty in the early 80s and the late 50s, too. So but now the 3D it's becoming, just comes back every couple decades. But it's come back with it. I think it's the biggest comeback with a vengeance that 3D's ever had. Like 3D was always a novelty that would pop up from here to there. But this is one where it's just it's here and it's continuously not going away. So I think we can't get rid of it this time, unfortunately. Well, and I brought up that that CGI, as we know it, is actually older than we think it is. For instance, as I was researching this. There were some, there was CGI in some old movies from the 70s. I didn't know. I didn't realize that the entire title sequence of Richard Donner's Superman was CGI. The titles? Yeah, the the the, the title sequence, the credit sequence at the beginning was computer generated. Oh well. But it doesn't look like it. It looks like yeah, every it, other title sequence. Yeah, it does. You I know, didn't know that. It, I didn't know that either. I did know that like. The videotape that the video cube or whatever that Krug watches later in Star Trek Three, but this the Genesis effect from Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan, that was CGI and it kind of looks like it because it's got that flat, almost plastic look to it. It does look like it. You've got you got rock and roll. Last Starfighter, Last Starfighter was an extensive amount of CGI. Well, but that one you could tell that it was CGI. It, it just had had that computer effect look it was awesome but it was supposed to look like a video game so i uh, maybe in my head i'm giving it more credit than than i should be but since it's based on a video game within the movie my brain said i don't it's okay that it looks more video gameish, you know oh i think it totally works i mean i got the blu-ray not too long ago and i think it, it looks awesome it fits in with the movie it doesn't stand it doesn't seem out of place at all Especially Death Blossom. You know, and then you've, you've got like Flight of the Navigator, the, the silver alien spacecraft. That was CG. You've got ones like, like Willow, you know, the morphing effects in Willow or the water tentacle in the abyss. So CG goes back way further than, than we generally think. Because we generally think of it from the mid to late 90s where CG really came in. And, and I do want to point out, there are things that are considered early 80s CGI that aren't such as escape from new york when snake is looking at the uh, the computer that green wireframe where he's when he's trying to land the glider that's often credited in many blogs as cg it's not john carpenter outright says on the commentary james cameron built that entire model painted it completely black and then outlined the buildings in green 
and then swung the camera around for what would be needed. So that entire CG sequence in Snake's plane is 100% a practical lighting effect. So CG was not even CG sometimes. Or, or, or like some of the CG stuff, you know, the stuff that you would see on the computers in Alien, that was all hand-drawn line animation because computer technology was not up to that point yet. So my question then is, are the, are movies like like Last Starfighter and Tron and Wrath of Khan and all that that used CGI sparingly, do you think those made for an easier transition? Or the fact that we didn't really notice it was CG back then, does that make what happened in the 90s, the CG explosion, all that much more turbulent of why it looked worse yet was being used more i think that uh they they wanted the wow factor like when people saw the t-1000 come out of the flaming wreckage of the truck in terminator 2 the audience was like oh my god this is a i've never seen anything like this before they were doing stuff that they couldn't have done with practical effects before but unfortunately uh i think that the the modern CGI, what it has become, has made it into a lazy crutch instead of the old days where uh, John Carpenter would be like, OK, we need to do this and we have to find a way to do it practically. Uh, and they would make these um, you know amazing visual effects from just some chicken wire and, and bubble gum and whatnot, uh, whereas now it's like, well, we can make whatever we want and you know we can write however fantastical a script we want and then just do it all in 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 post and that's why like i was kind of annoyed when gravity was nominated for best picture because it it was all reliant on the visual aspects of it there really wasn't a good story to go along with i mean i'm not saying that it was a bad movie but as far as from my humble opinion I don't feel that that was Oscar caliber production. I think it well, was. Well, and you also got to realize in that, speaking of the uneasy transition, when Tron came up for a special effects Oscar, they were denied even even a nomination because they said using the computer was cheating. Talk about and, how much the transition has moved, right? Oh, talk about how yeah, how how much of a transition that is because now God, I think Tron should be given a posthumous Oscar. For special Absolutely. effects. Because Tron, Tron still looks amazing. To be fair, a lot of that is not as, as CG as you would think. Oh, no, I know. But I'm saying, like, from, uh, from a, a Disney movie from way back when that was a new property that was doing a lot of things that were weird, <laughs> I, I still think it, it just it, it holds up incredibly well. I don't think it necessarily made the transition easier. Or harder, for that matter. I think the reason it's just the cost of it all went down is what made the transition more prolific, I guess you would say. You know, you, you've also got some other uneasy transitions. For instance, Charles Band was recently on a podcast, and he was talking about how the Internet has killed independent film. I at first was like, oh, come on. And then when he started talking about it, I'm like, He's got a point because he's like even back in the full moon days. So even after the Empire days were over, he's like, you could make a movie for four hundred thousand dollars and you could get 30,000 from HBO 
and then you'd make the rest of your budget back on video alone. Now, if you try to see a movie to HBO, you get they offer five to six thousand dollars for for a new film now. And then with streaming, he's like Netflix. He didn't give a number, but he said they don't offer you crap. They want your movie for next to nothing because they know you don't have another choice. If you don't put your your movie on Netflix, then they've got plenty of other things to replace it with. You cannot make your money back anymore on a low-budget feature with a budget of over $100,000 because of Netflix. So do you think the uneasy transition to Netflix being the go-to provider has hurt film in general? Not watching film, but making films, especially on the low-budget end? I'll absolutely agree that Netflix has done its damage in filmmaking and how to make movies because of the fact that Netflix, they're not going to make a whole lot of money off an individual feature. Therefore, if you're going to make a movie for Netflix, they're not going to give you a lot of money for it. The whole thing with direct-to-home markets nowadays is because it's Netflix or nothing. I mean, Redbox's struggle as it is because most people will just get it from a Netflix. And on top of that, there's piracy and there's so many other streaming options. Piracy is really minor in this, though, because piracy only accounts for between 5 to 7 percent, according to Band. So piracy is almost a negligible number. He was just bitching about how cable and Netflix specifically have just destroyed any ability to make your money back on an independent feature nowadays. Netflix and all the other streaming companies are not going to give you a whole lot of money to do it. That's why people that work specifically in the direct-to-home market, if you compare back when it was huge with VHS, when you could get the money, and those direct-to-video movies looked amazing, versus nowadays where your direct-to-video movies are a talking cat with something that was made to stick in a red box. When Cecil Trachtenberg videos have more have more of a quality standard, then your movie, you've got a problem. I am a legitimate filmmaker, I'll have you know. <laughs> Jerk. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that uh, it is definitely tougher to make money back on an independent feature now. Although, the, the thing is, you can make bank if, it's, if you get it into the right hands. So where it's harder to get your product noticed, if your stuff is unique enough and it captures that magical right time, right moment thing, you can have the next paranormal activity or something of that like where it just explodes and becomes a monstrous hit and you make money beyond your wildest dreams. But like in the VHS era, that new emerging market nurtured independent film, whereas streaming strangles it. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's one of those things where I have such uh, it's it, it really is tough because it's it is the market moving forward and you can't argue with the convenience factor of being able to sit down and be like, all right, well, what am I going to watch tonight? One of these a hundred thousand movies or whatever. It's giving you access to a library that previously was un, unattainable. And so unfortunately as is when there are uneasy transitions with stuff like this certain things just fall to the wayside and unfortunately a lot of like lower budget features are are taking the hit but to be perfectly honest as much as i love full moon their catalog as of late it's almost like they're not even trying that's because 
he can't make any mo- band can't make any money anymore, so he has to keep lowering the budgets so he can make a little bit of money with the sales to Netflix and to HBO for the pittances they pay him. So basically the market found its own level and the market is production quality doesn't exist anymore unless you're a studio. I don't know. I I mean, look at the asylum is pumping out garbage and they're making a monstrous pro, you know, uh, profit. So I, I find it hard to believe that uh, Evil Bong versus the Ginger Dead Man has a budget even close. Uh, you know, if, if they're pulling in asylum numbers, then they really shouldn't have an issue. I don't understand why they can't just you know, put their put the quality up just enough to where they would or, or make a deal with Sci-Fi Channel. I'm pretty sure Sci-Fi would be willing to deal with them and and maybe start making some decent movies again. And that might be able to put them back on top, back to where they were back in the 80s and 90s instead of just floundering and complaining. Well, you brought that up. Sci-Fi actually might not be a viable market even for the Asylum anymore. It just came out this week that Sci-Fi has decided with Game of Thrones being so big and other genre properties, they have finally realized that the geek market that they should have been cultivating since the mid-90s is actually a market that spends a lot of money and that they, the, the president of Sci-Fi came out, they're catering to the everyman when they should be catering to the geek culture. So they're actually going to stop when their contract with the Asylum and Corman run out. They're going to stop those bad Saturday night movies. And right now they're looking for, quote, a space opera to rival Game of Thrones. They had one. They had Battlestar Galactica. They had Farscape. And what did they do? They canceled both of them. Yeah, I was going to say, they've had plenty of those in the past. But that was at that time when they said, we don't want that market. We don't want the sci-fi fan market. That's when they were saying, we want your average guy that digs ditches for a living to watch our channel. Not, you know, you geeks are the ones who nurtured us through our first few tumultuous years, but you didn't buy anything. What that signals to me is that even cable is starting to realize this like asylum trend was momentary. This was a transitory phase to something bigger. And I I think that's interesting because I'd like the 90s version of the sci-fi channel done today again because I can't stand this. We are the Asylum Roger Corman channel. I like the Asylum Roger Corman channel, but I would also be interested to see what original television they can come up with. I see no reason they can't be both, actually. Bingo. There is absolutely positively no reason they can't be both. The problem I had with sci-fi was when they started putting things like wrestling on there. And that was when they Law were... and Order episodes. Yeah, they had Law and Order episodes on there? They, they had uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit ran for a while. But but see, according to Sci-Fi, they were being selective because it was all episodes that dealt with serial killers. So their logic was, if we can show a movie like Seven, we can show the serial killer episodes of SVU. It's not that different, right? Yeah. I don't see there being a problem with them having really highbrow 
whatever they want to call it, uh, the sci-fi version of Game of Thrones, and still be like, you know what, we're going to have our uh, Memorial Day marathon of Explosion Fest Asylum movies. I think that there is a place for both, because there are a lot of sci-fi fans and geeks in general that love Blade Runner and love Sharknado. Do you think it could have gone smoother than than the whole Anaconda looks like a PlayStation graphic CGI that maybe they could have done like what Cecil suggested with you use a practical and then use the computer to enhance it, like to say remove the mat lines or wire removal or whatnot instead of just make the effect in the computer? Early 2000s fire effects. When instead of setting a building on fire or a model, they would just take a standard shot of the building and add ultra fake looking CG fire coming out of the windows that it was the, to me, the novelty and the gimmick over quality. That's where I think the transition should have been slower than what it was. You think the transition should have been slower? I think it should have been, okay. It's like the first time you have sex, you don't just push right in or there's going to be blood. But that's what happened, really, with CG. They didn't take their time and ease it in. Well, it depends on whose first time it is. I think there were a lot of people that were like, this is going to be the future, people are going to love this, and they jumped right on without really knowing what they were doing. I mean, CGI, the ones from before, those were very talented effects artists who knew what they were doing and knew the look they were going for. But then you had a lot of people that, didn't have that experience and they were trying so that's why it made for a rough transition but everything's going to have that now everybody knows how to do cgi other fire effect thing that always got me was the obvious actor on green screen jumping away from the explosion where you can see the green outline of them flying towards the the camera or from the chroma key in the practical era and Band did this a lot at the at, with Empire and Full Moon stuff, where you set the miniature on fire of the giant robot or whatever, and it looks like a miniature on fire. Because what you have to, what you had to learn how to do was what you do is you slow down the frame rate when you're shooting that, so the fire moves at what to your eye seems like a more natural pace. It doesn't look like a model that's on fire at that point. That, to me, is almost as bad as just CG fire over a picture of a building. Change is never easy. Sometimes these things change too quickly. Sometimes they change too slowly. Sometimes it's too aggressive, like with DVD just brutally massacring VHS in, the, in its sleep after having making love to it against a pinball machine. So to me, it is kind of hit and miss, but like the color TV example we used at the beginning of this, It's always been there. They fight against every innovation. The studios fought against VHS because they thought it would they thought it would hurt their TV sales of their movies. So they're they're always going to fight the new format. And then when that new format becomes the old format, they're going to fight the new format that's replacing their new format. To make a very uneasy transition, where can we find Alex the Marquis de Swayjowski? You can find me at geekjuicemedia.com. Cecil T find me at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. 
And you can find me being grumpy and arguing about every transition at 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I'm at the same geekjuicemedia.com. So I'm going to transition into whatever song I end up picking and post. Give me an M. M. Give me an A. A. Give me a U. U. Give me an L. L. Give me your money. Sure. What's that spell? Mall. What's that spell? Show me mall. Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.